Welcome to the latest episode of the Big Screen Batman podcast series, celebrating the 75th anniversary of the character. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler, and as always, this podcast is released through Bureau42.com. We're now up to the release of Batman Begins on June 15th, 2005. So the Burton Schumacher films have come and gone, Catwoman has come and gone, but Michael Uslan hasn't given up. Uslan was a comic-loving child when the Adam West Batman series hit the TV screen, and what he saw appalled him. The comic book medium was being belittled in a way that he was almost personally offended by. He made it his lifetime goal to bring comics in general, and Batman in particular, onto the big screen in a way that respected the property and the audience. He bought the film rights in the late 1970s and spent over 10 years trying to get the movies made, producing all Burton Schumacher collaborations as well as Catwoman. He served as executive producer on this installment as well. But this time was different. We'd had multiple Sam Raimi Spider-Man films, multiple Blade films, multiple X-Men films, and a general change in public perspective about comics and superhero films. The market had proven that audiences would pay for quality productions based on the source material. Uslan took the opportunity to try again. Christopher Nolan was a writer and producer with some well-earned respect from his independent work, but not enough yet to sell a movie based on his name alone, which is a nice combination for a big-budget film. He'd written, co-written, and or directed Following, Memento, and Insomnia at this point, and Uslan brought him on board for Batman. Nolan felt that something had been missing from all the Batman films to date. Realistic psychology. How does one go from witnessing the death of his or her parents to dressing up as a bat and spending millions on gadgets? Why do it personally and not through other donations and agencies? He wanted to tell the part of the story that he hadn't seen before. Well, forgive him for not having seen Mask of the Phantasm, as hardly anyone had. He partnered for writing duties with David S. Goyer. Now, Goyer's writing career starts in 1990, at least as far as the IMDb is concerned. Early credits included Death Warrant, The Substitute, Crow City of Angels, and others but it was Dark City that first grabbed the attention of the industry. He went from that to the Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. made-for-TV movie starring David Hasselhoff, which I will someday find and watch, and then to the Blade trilogy. While Blade's box office numbers were never at Spider-Man or X-Men levels, they were consistently far higher than industry analysts predicted. He genuinely loves the source material. So once you've got a director and writer, you need cast and crew. The casting calls went out, naturally. Of the many people who tried out for the title role, Christian Bale won the part. Bale's resume to this point included Velvet Goldmine, American Psycho, Shaft, Equilibrium, Reign of Fire, The Machinist, and the title role on the English dub of Howl's Moving Castle. Bale had been interested in playing Batman since a friend gave him a copy of the Arkham Asylum graphic novel in the year 2000, and he realized the character and world had so much more potential than had ever made it to the screen. He fought hard for the part and decided to play him as a rage-driven monster of a man simply to set himself apart from every other Batman that had come before. Nolan, Goyer, and the studio executives all had different first choices for the part before the auditions began, and none were thinking of Bale. But after his audition, they did agree that he was going to win the role. Uh, Incidentally, those auditions were done while wearing a part of Val Kilmer's original Batman costume, including the mask, just to help them screen test in the suit. Now, Other casting choices include Academy Award winner Michael Caine as Alfred Pennyworth. He's got 160 acting credits to his name at the time of this recording, dating back to 1950. I don't expect to actually need to spend any significant time on his resume. I mean, it's Michael Caine. We also have Academy Award nominee Liam Neeson as Henri Ducard, who's probably best known at this point for either his role in Schindler's List or as Qui-Gon Jinn in the Star Wars prequels. 
He's got 104 credits going back to 1978, including Darkman, Rob Roy, Under Suspicion, Ethan Frome, Michael Collins, Gangs of New York, Love Actually, Kinsey, Kingdom of Heaven, and a number of other respectable roles after this. So he's clearly a known and trustworthy actor at this point in his career. Now, Katie Holmes played Rachel Dawes, who's one of the few original characters created for the movie series. She was in The Ice Storm, Disturbing Behavior, Go, Muppets from Space, Teaching Mrs. Tingle, Wonder Boys, The Gift, Abandoned Phone Booth, The Singing Detective, and more, but was best known for her regular role as part of the ensemble cast of Dawson's Creek. Now, Gary Ullman wouldn't be nominated for an Academy Award until years later, and he played James Gordon in this movie. He's best known to comic fans as Commissioner Gordon, but here he's only a detective when the film begins. His previous credits included Sid and Nancy, Henry and June, JFK, Dracula, True Romance, Romeo is Bleeding, Lyon the Professional, Immortal Beloved, Murder in the First, The Scarlet Letter, Basquiat, The Fifth Element, Air Force One, Lost in Space, Nobody's Baby, Hannibal, Sin, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and more. He's one of those actors where, when I was working at the theater, audiences wouldn't realize they'd seen him in half a dozen movies before, because he can just completely embody the role. And is perfectly willing to undergo a lot of hair and makeup changes to give an identity that's suitable to the part, rather than just make sure everyone can recognize him as him. Now, Cillian Murphy plays both Jonathan Crane and the Scarecrow, who's possibly the oldest recurring Batman villain that was not yet translated into live action. And though he's certainly a working actor, you know, 28 Days Later and Girl with a Pearl Earring were his only two really high-profile films to this point. So to a lot of the audience, he was a complete unknown. He actually does play the part very well. He was an excellent casting choice. You do believe that he is very intelligent, very well-spoken, can give the appearance of professionalism, but is certainly hiding some kind of dark secret and has that malevolent edge to him the entire time. Now, Tom Wilkinson had already managed to obtain his first of two Academy Award nominations for In the Bedroom, when he was cast as Carmine Falcone. His other credits date back to 1976, including Sense and Sensibility, The Ghost in the Darkness, The Full Monty, The Governess, Rush Hour, The Patriot, Essex Boys, Chain of Fools, Black Knight, Girl with a Pearl Earring, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and a lot more. And this character of Falcone is a nearly direct adaptation of the character from Frank Miller and David Mazzucchelli's Batman Year One. Rutger Hauer currently has 149 credits, dating back to 1968 including a lot of Dutch projects early in his career that he produced back in his homeland, as well as North American productions, including Blade Runner, Lady Hawk, The Hitcher, Wanted Dead or Alive, Blind Fury, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, in a role that Anne Rice is quoted as the inspiration for Lestad in Interview with the Vampire, Lex the Dark Zone, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Alias, Smallville, and Sin City. This is a character who was also created for the movie. Ken Watanabe's career on the IMDb goes back to 1983, with a lot of overseas titles to kick it off, and The Last Samurai being his first North American project about two years before this came out. He was cast as Rachel Ghoul, which is constantly mispronounced during the course of the film as Razal Ghoul, and that's a character that's been around in the comics since the 1970s, in the days when Denny O'Neill was writing and Neil Adams was drawing. And the two of them put that character together. So Raish appears a bit different in the movies than he is in the comics, but looking just at this movie, you can argue about whether he's really all that different. Now, in the movie, we see an elderly Rachel Ghoul early on. He dies in a fire when the League of Shadows gets dismantled, or appears to have been dismantled, and Bruce saves Descartes. 
that later on, Bruce Wayne meets a younger man who's going by the name Rachel Ghoul, and assumes that Descartes is the real Rachel Ghoul, having seen the first Rachel Ghoul die, thinking, oh, Descartes doing the theatricality and the showmanship, and this man is the symbol, and Descartes is really the force behind all of this. Now, Liam Neeson's character of Descartes doesn't confirm this interpretation, but he doesn't deny it either. He just sort of runs with it and keeps responding. In the comics, Rachel Ghoul has access to a mystical means to cheat death and regain his youth. So he can actually die and be reborn as a young man. When he returned from the dead, looking much younger, he would keep going on his quest with all the memories he had before. And he could only do so as long as there were enough of these mystical Lazarus pits buried around the world. So it is entirely possible that that is actually the same Rachel Ghoul we're seeing in the movies, that Descartes went back for his body, put him in one of these Lazarus pits, brought him back to life as a much younger man, and just continues on as Descartes and allowed Bruce Wayne to continue under his inaccurate assumption. So at least at this point in the trilogy, it is open for interpretation whether this is consistently the comic book version or not. Now we also have Mark Boone Jr. playing Detective Flass, which is a character who is also directly out of Batman Year One. And he's got a long career of small parts, including the movies Die Hard 2, 7, Armageddon, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, The Thin Red Line, Memento, Get Carter, Too Fast, Too Furious, and a number of TV guest spots on The Equalizer, Law and Order, Quantum Leap, In the Heat of the Night, Wonder Years, Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and Carnival. We've got Linus Roach playing Thomas Wayne, who's coming with credits including The Forgotten, Hearts War, a few other titles. He is a working actor, but most of his high-profile roles are ones that follow this movie rather than precede it. Now, we also have Academy Award winner Morgan Freeman, who's got over 100 credits dating back to 1964, including Another World, Electric Company, the 1985 Twilight Zone, Lean on Me, Clean and Sober, Driving Miss Daisy, Glory, Bonfire the Vanities, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, The Unforgiven, The Shawshank Redemption, Outbreak 7, Mall Flanders, Chain Reaction, Kiss the Girls, Amistad, Hard Rain, Deep Impact, Under Suspicion, Nurse Betty, Along Came a Spider, High Crimes, Some of All Fears, Bruce Almighty, The Big Bounce, Million Dollar Baby, Unleashed, and a lot more, particularly when you start including narration credits. In here he plays Lucius Fox, who's a character also born out of the Denny O'Neill run, who's been long overdue for the live-action treatment. So he was brought in for a couple of reasons. Mainly, from a story perspective, we needed to understand how Bruce Wayne had time to be Batman so effectively and run this multi-million dollar company. And Denny O'Neill and his artist decided, well, he delegates. And they needed to create a character for him to delegate to. Now, this was in the era when people were finally starting to realize that, you know, Caucasian males were grossly overrepresented in the North American comic book market. So they were trying to diversify. They chose to make Lucius Fox an African-American male instead. And yeah, the character is a great character. You do understand and believe, yeah, he can run Wayne Tech Enterprises. Yeah, he's a stand-up guy. He would protect Bruce Wayne's secret should he ever figure it out. All of that is there. Getting into some of the lesser-known performers, we've got Colin McFarlane, an actor with 111 credits, but mainly in small roles and productions, many of which I've never even heard of. He plays Commissioner Loeb, who's a new character named for Jeff Loeb, the writer of Batman the Long Halloween and many more stories. Sarah Stewart had very few roles prior to this movie that are of any notoriety, but she was steadily working, including the voice of a computer in an episode of Doctor Who. 
Doctor Who fans might also spot Christine Adams, who played Kathika in The Long Game as Jessica in this film. And we even have actually a fairly recognizable guy playing the homeless man. I'm probably going to butcher his name. It's uh, Rade Sarbedzija. He's an actor with 167 credits to his name, including a huge amount of overseas work before coming to North American audiences in Broken English, The Saint, Polish Wedding, Mighty Joe Young, Eyes Wide Shut, Mission Impossible 2, Space Cowboys, Snatch, The Quiet American, Eurotrip, and a lot more. The production itself actually includes a couple of people as composers. James Newton Howard and Hans Zimmer both worked on the score. I'm not going to go through their credits. They've got hundreds, more than anyone else that we've listed here today. And they both did excellent work. Now, while they did most of the score, they did have other assists from people who were you know, primarily executing things in their style and following their lead. Unfortunately, it meant that there was sort of enough fingers in the pot that they didn't even qualify for an Academy Award nomination, which irritated a lot of people. And they did a couple things in response to that. First, they cut down the number of collaborators for the sequels. And second, the Academy Award loosened up some of its rules. Because the Academy recognized that, yeah, these guys should have had a chance to compete in that category, because they did great work. Now, editor Lee Smith actually has a relatively short career compared to a lot of the other production crew, but that's far from unproductive. He worked on Robocop 2, Joey, The Truman Show, Master and Commander, Far Side of the World, and more. So not a lot of titles, but it didn't take long for him to work his way up to some high-profile titles, which he did quite well on. Now, of course, awesome creative teams have made some pretty bad movies in the past, and unknown teams have made great movies, so we need to get into the film itself and figure out how that stood up. And this film is very much about the psychology of the hero. So when discussing Catwoman, I spoke about how the film accomplished its artistic goals of female empowerment while failing to create an entertaining film. This one manages to succeed on both fronts. So on the surface, it's a fantastic, though imperfect, action film, superhero or otherwise. Beyond that, it speaks to the psychology of fear and uncertainty, and how a small number of people in the right position can influence entire cities, or possibly larger groups of populations, to their own ends with emotional manipulation. I'm really tempted to make cracks about anti-vaccine people here, but I'll save that for one of my science-specific podcasts. Batman here uses fear as a weapon, having seen its power as a child, and he learns the power of symbolism from Ducard. And he learns the, the need to train from his conversation with Falcone. He understands a lot more about what's going on. And we see each piece along the way that leads him to becoming the character that he becomes. We understand where the tech comes from, how he has time to run his company and be Batman, and how he's learned to fight as effectively as he does. We come to understand how he can have the Batcave under Wayne Manor. We've got a six-generation-old house that used to be part of slave running, and it's got features and secret tunnels that people didn't know about, so it was probably intended for this purpose, to have this labyrinth underneath. That's why it was chosen. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's part of the home's history that has been buried for fear of retribution. It makes sense. So we encounter the Scarecrow and how he uses fear for completely different ends. He's not using it for the altruistic goals. He's not using it like Batman is targeted specifically against the criminal elements, and yet inspiring the average person. No, he's doing it just to screw with people because he likes it. We get versions of Alfred Pennyworth and Jim Gordon that are fully realized characters, and they're not just cheap tropes. 
which is especially nice for Jim Gordon, because he hasn't been fully realized in any incarnation of a live-action series prior to this. We see villains we've never seen in live-action before, who were specifically chosen as villains we've never seen in live-action before, but who mesh together well for the themes being dealt with and in the context of this story. The comic fans get Easter eggs here, including Victor Saz, as a serial killer who carves tally marks into his body every time he kills someone, and he's covered by those tally marks, which, you know, gives a nod to the richness of the Batman universe by allowing this really creepy character to be there, but not really emphasizing him. So all these elements come into play and work very well. By and large, this is the first time we've seen a live-action Batman where it feels as though the production crew not only respect, but appreciate, enjoy, and embrace the comic book roots, and try to take what's been working in the comics since 1939 and just put it on screen. And this is true of all the characters. I mean, this Alfred is pitch perfect right down to the declaration that he will never give up on Bruce. Remember that line. We're coming back to it in December. So a basic plot outline is that eight-year-old Bruce Wayne witnesses the murder of his parents shortly after being freaked out by dropping into a cave filled with bats. As he grows up, he plans revenge against Joe Chill, the man who killed them who's been in prison ever since. When someone else kills Joe Chill first, he kind of loses his way and his purpose because he didn't have anything for his life planned beyond killing Joe Chill. So he does go to confront the man who deprived him of his revenge, Carmine Falcone, who Joe Chill was going to testify against. And he gets a rather brutal wake-up call, letting him know that he's nowhere near powerful enough to take out Falcone. But he does take some of Falcone's advice literally and disappears for years, learning what else there is to learn about the other side of the society. While doing so, he is recruited by the League of Shadows, but they have a falling out when he refuses to kill a man. This is long after his training has begun. He ends up setting the place on fire, saving his mentor Ducard while trying to escape. Upon his return to Gotham, he sets up the infrastructure and the public persona of Bruce Wayne he needs to make Batman work, and sets those wheels in motion. In the process, he learns that the League and Ducard are alive and well, and planning to destroy Gotham in a takes-no-prisoners approach to saving the world. Batman ultimately defeats them with the help of love interest and assistant DA Rachel Dawes and Detective Jim Gordon. So, From a structure and character perspective, this works magnificently. We see everything we need to see to understand how Bruce Wayne would choose to become Batman and would be able to become Batman. We see the effect he has on others through Rachel Dawes, through Jim Corden, and through some random kid on a balcony. We see where the bat symbol comes from, even though it should have killed Falcone to be strapped to a search like that powerful. He would have been burnt and essentially fried to a crisp. We see how organized crime responds. We see how the corruption in the city starts to take another turn. And we also see the effect he can have on others, where the criminals up their game. So from a scientific perspective, there is one huge problem. Part of the plan of the League of Shadows is to poison Gotham's water supply with something that only matters and only has effect when it's inhaled. And it's been in the city's water supply for weeks, waiting for this powerful microwave emitter to boil all the water and just coat the city in this gas. There are a couple of issues with that. First of all, if it's been in all the city's water supply for weeks, people should have been exposed every time they had a hot shower. Because that also involves inhaling this compound in a gaseous form. 
Second, if you have a microwave emitter that's powerful enough to do what we see to the city's water supply, which is perfectly viable, uh, mi microwaves do boil water very, very effectively. If you've got enough power behind them, yeah, they can boil large quantities of water and do what we see here. Unfortunately, one of the main ingredients in human beings is water. So all the people that we see that are closer to the emitter than these water mains, and possibly even slightly farther, would be dead. If you can boil the amount of water you have in a water main, you can easily boil the amount of water you have in a human being. So this would be an incredibly devastating weapon that would have taken out Batman, Ducard, or Rachel Ghoul, whoever Liam Neeson was really playing. It would have taken out Jim Gordon. It would have taken out every member of the population that got even remotely close. It wouldn't be the poison killing them. It would be the bloody microwaves. So the scientist in me finds that piece kind of hard to ignore and forgive, which is probably why this is only my second favorite live-action Batman film to date. One of the other elements that we talk about in these podcasts is what impact the movie has on the source material and if there's anything feeding back and forth. Now, this one drew very heavily from the comics and was faithful to existing comics, particularly the works written by Frank Miller and Denny O'Neill. As a result, there's not as much influence going the other way because those stories have already been written and told. That's just one of the side effects of having an adaptation this faithful. And finally, we do like to sit down and talk about how this did at the box office. Now, we won't be able to compare it to other films in these franchises as we have been in the past, because since our last recording, the IMDb has basically evolved. It had already purchased boxofficemojo.com. Now that information is built into the IMDb pages, and those comparison charts are not available unless you've got a paid subscription, which at this time, I do not. So I can look at how this particular film did, not adjusted for inflation, but that's about it. So as you may remember, for a film to be considered profitable, the gross has to be two to three times what the original budget was. The estimated budget for this film is $150 million. The final worldwide gross was $374,218,673. So with that two or three to one ratio rule of thumb, the worldwide box office works out about 2.5 to 1. Domestic is more like 2 to 1. So the theatrical release would have brought it very close to breaking even. The home video sales added a lot to this total. So in the long term, this has been profitable. It has been released multiple times in multiple formats, especially as each new installation in the trilogy came out. Now, when we're talking about each new installation in the trilogy, we need to talk about the other films. And that's where we pick up next month. So join us again in November when we come back and discuss The Dark Knight. Thank you for listening.